I can ask you to take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1 this morning. You know, folks like uh, Allison Hunter, folks like Greg Burrell, folks that can sing well, they, they receive requests from time to time to sing certain songs. And uh, that's always a wonderful thing for them. And it might surprise you to know that I receive requests too. Not to sing. No, 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 no. Ne- never to sing. I know nobody, nobody, nobody ever asked me to sing. Uh, I remember just recently my older brother Gordon was having a birthday. Suzanne and I got on the phone, sang happy birthday to him. My brother said to Suzanne, you sing beautifully. Then he said to me, Garth, don't give up your day job. <laughs> you know. Oh, I know I can't sing. But I, re- I receive requests every once in a while from people that ask me to do a sermon or a sermon series. And uh, recently I was requested to do a, a series on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I'm going to do a little two-part series. All really we have time for right now between now and Mother's Day. Mother's Day's coming up, fellas, okay? Be warned. Mother's Day is coming up. Don't miss that. Uh, it will be bad, okay? Don't miss that. Mother's Day is coming up. So the next couple of Sundays uh, before Mother's Day I'm going to do a little mini-series. And maybe somewhere down the line we'll do a longer series on the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul Lee Tan, I have Paul Lee's book, by the way. Paul Lee Tan has a book about yay thick. Uh, It's 7,700 illustrations for preaching and teaching. And somebody gave me that book about 35 years ago. Uh, In fact, as a matter of fact, it was the the deacon chairman of the church I was pastoring at the time. And uh, it's been a great book. I think I've used all 7,700 of them. Several of them. Sometimes I feel like I've, some of them I've used 7,700 times. But I've used all 7,700 of them over the years. Great illustration book. He had one of his own here in the book. It goes like this. Paul E. Tan has estimated there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament alone. Now think about that. We don't typically think of the second coming in the Old Testament. But 1,845 references to the Old Testament where 17 books give it prominence. In the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. A very generous one out of every 30 verses deals with the second coming. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. And for every prophecy in the Bible about Christ's first coming, what we call the Nativity or the Incarnation, there are eight references to the second coming. Eight references to one reference. The second coming talked about more so than the first coming of Christ. So this morning I want to share with you the first of a two-part mini-series called The Second Coming of Jesus Christ. As you can see from the title of this morning's message, it's simply called The Promise of Christ's Second Coming. It will deal more with the what and the who of the second coming. Next Sunday morning, I'll deal with the second message in this series. It's called The Proximity of Christ's Second Coming. And it will deal more with the when of Christ's Second Coming. Now, we've got to be careful there, don't we? We start talking about the when of Christ's Second Coming. You'll see why in a little while today. We've got to be careful there when we talk about the when of Christ's Second Coming. But Jesus gave us signs of the times. Jesus told us, when you see these things happening, know that the end is near. And so we'll be talking about some of those signs of the times next Sunday morning. Here's what I want you to see this morning when we talk about the promise of Christ's second coming. The promise of Christ's second coming makes this life joyful and all things bearable. The promise of Christ's second coming makes this life joyful. Smile for me, folks. Smile for me. You're not in court. Smile for me, okay? 
There you go. Makes this life joyful and all things bearable. All things bearable. I'm going to share with you seven aspects of the promise of Christ's second coming. The first one is this, the certainty of the promise. Number one, the certainty of the promise. Look with me, if you will, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the scripture that was read a little while ago by Ken. It says, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go up into heaven. Probably the best quotation on the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean from a non-biblical writer. You know what I mean there. The best quotation from a non-biblical writer on the second coming of Christ comes from Alexander McLaren. Probably not a name you use every day. Alexander McLaren was a Scottish, Scottish-born, Scottish-born preacher. Ultimately came to be the pastor of the Union Chapel in Manchester, England. He put it this way, and he put it very well. He said, the early church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. I believe that word upper taker was coined by him. The upper taker. One who would take us up. You know, the word rapture means to be snatched up. It means that Jesus Christ will return one day and snatch us up from this earth and we'll be with him forevermore. From 1942 to 1945, General Douglas MacArthur served as commander-in-chief of the Allied forces in the Pacific Theater during World War II. When it became clear in 1942 that Bataan, the last American foothold in the Philippines, would fall to the Japanese, President Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to leave. As he left on March 11, 1942, MacArthur uttered his famous promise, I shall return. And he did return. Just two years later, in October of 1944, he kept his promise to come back. Our Lord Jesus Christ, his promise is a little bit older than that, isn't it? 2,000 years old now. The promise of our Lord Jesus Christ to come back. And though it's been a longer time, the Son of God will keep His promise. How can we know that Jesus will keep His promise to come back for us? Because He cannot lie. Matter of fact, the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. People say, is there anything that God can't do? Well, one thing He can't do is He can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And because He has told us as a fact that He will one day come back for us, we know it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Do you believe it's going to happen? I just want to get a little audience appeal there. (laughs) Secondly, second concept here is the clarifying of the promise. The clarifying of the promise. There's a text in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians that I use at almost every graveside that I do. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. And it's a comprehensive kind of section of scripture for it not only deals with the death of believers and what happens to them, It says that when we die, our souls or our spirits go to be with the Lord immediately. As the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's absent from the body? Our souls or our spirits are absent from the body. But then verses 16 through 17 deal with something else. They deal with the rapture, the second coming of Christ. And what Paul says is this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. Those two verses are dealing with the rapture of the church. To be snatched up is what the word rapture means. In the Greek New Testament, the second coming of Christ is called the parousia. It was a word that was used of the coming of the emperor, the coming of a king. In ancient days, when a king was set to come on a certain journey, everybody got out and worked on the roads. Everybody made sure that the high places were made low, the low places were made high, the crooked places were made straight. You know, metaphorically, that's talking about our lives. Getting our lives right. Because the King of Kings is coming back. That's the clarifying of the promise. Then thirdly, there's the chronology of the promise. The chronology of the promise. In other words, when will Christ return? When will He come back? And we've got to be careful here. And we shall be. During Peter's day, there were those who believed that Jesus had so delayed His return for His church that they didn't believe He was ever coming back. Listen to what He says. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, and then verses 8 and 9, he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his coming, or where is this coming he promised? For ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a single day. For the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. For He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If in Peter's day, some felt that Jesus had delayed His return, and so He delayed it so long that He was never coming back, what about our day? In our day... Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. And yet Peter tells us that in God's economy of time, that it's only been two days. For a thousand years are like a single day with the Lord. Two gas company servicemen were out checking meters one particular day. They stopped at the beginning or the front of an alley. And they were just going to get out of their truck and walk down the alleyway and check meters on both sides of the alley as they continued their work. They got to the very last house in the alley and a a woman was in the house. She was watching them from their kitchen window when suddenly she saw these two servicemen turn around and run as fast as they could in the opposite direction. Unbeknownst to her, the older of the two gentlemen that was working on the meters challenged the younger one to a foot race because he thought it was important that older guys show younger guys they can still keep up with them. And so he was running down the alley. Both of them were running down the alley as fast as they could. When they got to the other end of the alley where their truck was parked, they suddenly realized the woman was running right behind them, just puffing and puffing. <laughs> and they, they said to her, Ma'am, what's the matter? What's the matter? She said, Fellas... When I see two gas men running away from me as hard as they can, I start running too. She thought it was an urgent situation, so she moved as quickly as she possibly could. Our response, you like that, didn't you, Allison? Our response to Christ's offer of salvation is likewise an urgent situation. I know the devil tells us, oh, you got as long as you need. Take your time. Don't make the decision now. Go on and do some things you want to do, and then one day when it's convenient, you can 
take Christ as your Savior, you can receive Him as your Lord, you can accept Him and receive salvation. But dear friend, we're not promised another moment of life. God doesn't owe us anything. We're not promised another moment of life. If we die today, He's been more than fair. We're not promised another minute. Not only that, Jesus Christ could come in the next minute. So we don't have all the time in the world. This morning, if you're wrestling with the decision of whether or not to give your heart to Jesus Christ, you need to do it today. You need to do it today. I'll tell a story at the end that will tell you why you need to do it today. At least one of the reasons. Then fourthly, the confidentiality of the promise. The confidentiality of the promise. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus, when referring to His second coming, said these words, But about that day or hour when I return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus said, I don't even know the day or time or hour of my return. But only the Father in heaven knows that. Jesus, of course, was voluntarily uninformed about the day and hour that He would return. Only He said the Father in heaven. Can't you see why He did that? (laughs) People would be constantly tormenting Him with, when are you coming back? You know it. Tell us. When are you coming back? Jesus doesn't want us to be so concerned about the when as He wants us to be concerned and ready for His coming. Isn't it odd that some people seem to think that they know what Jesus said He didn't even know? There are those out there that are telling us on a fairly regular basis it happens. Those out there telling us that they know when Jesus is going to return. There's a religious group several centuries ago that said that they knew exactly when Jesus was going to come back. And on the day they said Jesus was going to come back, they all dressed up in white robes, climbed up into trees so they'd be closer to Him when He returned. Can you imagine their embarrassment when they had to climb back down out of those trees that afternoon? They called that day the Great Disappointment. I bet it was. In 1988, closer to our time, Edgar C. Weissenet, then 56 years old, retired NASA rocket engineer living in Little Rock, Arkansas, published a paperback booklet that gave 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. The publisher, a firm in Santa Rosa, California, claimed they sold or gave away 6 million copies of that little booklet. The book predicted that the rapture would occur in September, or either on September 11th, the 12th, or the 13th in the year 1988. When that event failed to take place, Wisenant found an error in his calculations. They always do. Found an error in his calculations. Said, oops, I was wrong. I didn't figure this in. I got a new date. He gave the new date as September 1st, 1989. When that day came and went, he predicted another day. You know, Mark Twain, tongue-in-cheek, said that of all the predictions as to the date of the end of the world, less than half have been correct. <laughs> None of them have been correct. None of them have been correct. Jesus made it very clear that we cannot set a date for His second coming. But that does not mean that we should not study the signs of the times. So that we'll see what will precede His coming. And we'll look at those next Sunday morning. Then, fifthly, there's the command with the promise. The command with the promise. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44 says, Therefore keep watch. 
because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Now here's some good stuff. To be ready, to keep watch, and be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. You need two things. You need diligence... And you need patience. You need diligence and you need patience. What is diligence? Diligence is the determination to live God's way in both good times and bad. Diligence is the determination to live God's way in both good times and bad. A 16-year-old named William left home to seek his fortune. His earthly possessions he was able to fit in a small bag, small bundle, carried in one hand. One day, he met an elderly canal boat captain who listened to his story. This, of course, was happening in the New York area. You know about the canals up there. An elderly canal boat captain, he told him that his family was too poor to even feed him. They, they told him he was going to have to leave home and make a living for himself. The only skill he had, he told this captain, was in the making of candles and soap. The old captain knelt on his knees and prayed for the boy's future. And afterward, he gave the boy some advice. He said, William... Someone will be the leading soap maker in New York City. It could be you. Be a good man. Give your heart to Christ. Pay the Lord all that belongs to Him. Make an honest soap. Give a full pound. And I'm certain you'll be a prosperous and rich man one day. William followed that advice. He followed that godly counsel. William, that we didn't know back then, became the William whose name is a household word today. His name was William Colgate, the vast, prosperous man of the Colgate Soap Company. Prospered beyond his wildest dreams, was able to give millions of dollars to the cause of Christ, all because he was diligent. He did life God's way in the good times and in the bad. So we need diligence if we're going to be ready when Christ comes back. Secondly, we'll also need patience. We'll need patience. What is patience? Patience is the determination to wait on God's timing even when it's hard to wait. The determination to wait on God's timing even when it's hard to wait. Now, if you know anything about this particular time of the year, you know that it's turkey season. And uh, it's one of my favorite times of the year. It's turkey season. And, uh, you know, I I learned a long time ago, I, I didn't put it into a practice, but I learned a long time ago, from a, a champion turkey car, some tapes I was listening to, he told me that patience is the best call in your turkey vest. Patience is the best call in your turkey vest. Doesn't matter how pretty you sound. Doesn't matter how much you sound like a sweet old hen who's looking for a fellow. Doesn't matter. If you're not patient, it ain't going to work. So you've got to learn to be patient. And that took me a long, long time to learn. My typical routine is I'd go into a place, I'd set up, I'd call for 15 minutes, and if he didn't show up, if he didn't gobble, I was gone to the next place. And I'd hit three or four places in one morning. Uh, I was running and gunning, as they call it, but I wasn't killing many turkeys. You know what? I got to sneak in suspicion at one point that I wonder how many of those gobblers were actually coming to me. They were coming to that hen call, and when they got there, she was gone. Because I was gone. And what I had to understand was I needed to be more patient. So I started waiting longer. I started waiting 45 minutes and 
This past Tuesday, I, I topped my own personal record on waiting for a turkey to come to me. I waited a whole hour. And as you can see from the picture there, there you go, it, was, it paid off. It paid off to learn to be patient. I'm, I'm by, by the way, I'm sorry, I apologize for that picture. I used my flip phone to take it and, uh, you know, what can I say? It's all blurry. I got two pixels. But anyway, anyhow. Patience, diligence, both of them are needed. We're going to wait on the return of Jesus Christ. Number six, the comfort of the promise. The comfort of the promise. You know, if you're looking for a great text to summarize the Christian faith, this could be it. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And Paul writes to this young minister in the faith these words. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us, watch this now. Listen to this. It teaches us to say no, no, no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. What a wonderful passage of Scripture in summarizing the Christian faith and how we live it out each and every day. You know, the book of Revelation, of course, tells us that Christ will ultimately be victorious over the evil of His enemies. It gets its name from the Greek word apocalypto. It means unveiling. It means unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is prophetic literature that unveils the future. Such prophetic literature makes up a significant portion of the Bible. Revelation was written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And it became apparent during his reign that times for Christians were about to get a whole lot tougher, that persecution was coming. And it gives us a hint at the purpose and the reason. The church was about to have to face very hard days. And the purpose and reason is that apocalyptic literature normally is written during days of great tribulation for God's people. And it is written to give God's people hope. Hope that someone is coming back that will relieve the persecution and the suffering one day. What do promises do? Promises raise our hopes. Promises raise our hopes. Of course, not everybody believes in Jesus' promise to return one day. Liberal theologians tell us that Jesus wasn't actually promising to literally come back one day. Instead, He was just saying that His presence among those who honor His memory would be like His return to them. Friend, what do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Was it, uh, what, was it really not literal? Should we not expect Him to return? Is, is it just something to help us cope in this life? What is it? Dear friend, I believe in the literal, physical, and final coming of Jesus Christ. When one day He breaks through that eastern sky and He comes back to snatch up His people to be with Him forever. That's what I believe. That's what the Bible teaches. And by so coming, He will keep that promise that He made 2,000 years ago. I cannot believe, nor can I preach, anything less than that. For that is the truth of Scripture. Some churchgoers may say that such theology is out of date. It's not sophisticated. It's not with it. But I'm going to have to side with that old preacher who was 
being ridiculed by a younger and more liberal minister, their encounter actually turned into a poem, and it goes like this. You're just out of date, said young Pastor Bate, to one of our faithful old preachers who had carried for years in travel and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach on Hades and shock-cultured ladies with your barbarous doctrine of blood. You're so far behind you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the bud of ridicule's cut did not ruffle his sweetness and grace. Then he returned to young Bates, so suave and sedate, catch up, did my ears hear you say? Why, I couldn't succeed if I doubled my speed. You see, I'm not going your way. Dear friend, which way are you going? Do you believe that Jesus Christ will literally come back for you one day? I do. I believe He'll come back for His people one day. My final point is about the conductor of the promise. Number seven, the conductor of the promise. John chapter 14, a beautiful text, verses 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, so believe also in me. In my Father's mansion, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a room for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come back and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And the way, you know. Thomas, that is doubting Thomas, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How then can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes unto the Father unless they go by way of me. Jesus said, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And in the same way that you have to ride with the conductor if you're going to get where the train is going. So the only way any of us will get to heaven is if we go by way of Jesus Christ. I can't say that Jesus will come in my lifetime or in yours. But this I do know. I know He will come again. And because we know He's going to come again, we need to be ready. Because we know He could come today, we need to be ready today. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Are you ready? If he comes today. His is one of the most tragic stories in early American history. His name was Aaron Burr. Had a wonderful spiritual family pedigree. His father was a Presbyterian minister and the second president of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University. His grandfather was none other than Jonathan Edwards, the Massachusetts minister whom God used to kindle the fires of the first great awakening in America. Burr went on to serve with distinction in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Afterwards, he launched a stellar political career, becoming Attorney General of the State of New York. Vice, then um, he became a United States Senator from the State of New York. And finally, he became the third Vice President of the United States under President Thomas Jefferson. But in 1804, when Thomas Jefferson replaced Burr on his campaign ticket with someone else, Aaron Burr's meteor- meteoric political rise ended. Shortly after, amidst heated arguments with political opponent Alexander Hamilton, there was that infamous duel between Burr and Hamilton. Hamilton was mortally wounded. Burr was accused of murder. Not long after that, working out a deal to secure Spanish lands in the Southwest, Burr was accused of treason against the United States. Though he was never convicted for either one of those things, Burr's reputation had suffered so badly that the former vice president lived out the balance of his life in anonymity and seclusion. But Aaron Burr's sad life might have been very different. You see, the story is told of a revival that swept through the Princeton campus while Burr was still a student there. He went to the president of the university and he said, Mr. President, I've made up my mind to consider the claims of Christ. Now, Mr. President, what would you do if you were me? 
And the old president might have been right about a lot of things, but he was wrong about this thing. He said, son, if I were you, I would wait until the excitement of the revival has subsided, and then I would think carefully about becoming a Christian. Aaron Burr bowed his head and said, Mr. President, that's exactly what I will do. And it is stated as a fact that never again in his life did Aaron Burr express a desire to become a Christian. See, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 15 tells us, Today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your heart to Christ. It may be too late tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to make the decisions that would please you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.